0: John chapter 15. John, the gospel of John chapter 15. Let's read the first 11 verses. John 15. This falls right in the center of Christ's final um, uh, lessons with the disciples before he goes to give himself as the sacrifice. So before his crucifixion, These are like the goodbye, the farewell talks. Judas is gone. And now Christ says things to his followers that are essential for them to understand. We think of goodbye talks, you know, farewell talks. We don't we don't kind of fill them with extras. They're essential. So what does he say? Verse one, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may may be made full well may the Lord help us as we consider uh, how that living connection with Christ changes everything when it comes to obedience well let's turn our hearts and seek our King together let's pray our God we thank you for all that you've given us but really God it's you it's that you gave us yourself that thrills us when we see the emptiness that lies within. How can we turn and read what the scripture says about you and realize that all that we read about your perfections, that they are all turned toward us, turned toward every believer in kindness and in hope, in peace and in strength. You have been and are and forever will be the friend of sinners and we are shocked God that someone who loves purity like you love purity and hates sin as you hate sin would from eternity past to eternity future accomplish all that's needed so that we who loved sin might be rescued so that our hearts could be freed from the lies of selfishness. We could see sin as it really is. And having been given peace with you and brought into your kingdom, that we could live with you and by you and for you. God, we pray that you would spread your kingdom across this world today, that everywhere that the gospel is preached, that the, that the falseness of self, the emptiness of the world, Uh, the futility of religion apart from you, that it would be felt and not just agreed to, that the hearts of men and women and children would be ground to powder, not merely by the awareness that they aren't what they thought they were or that sin does deserve hell, but that they would see Christ crucified and that this would be a wound to their heart that they never recover from. God, we thank you that it's your kindness that in the end breaks through every wall that we put between us and you. How can we be indifferent when you, the king, are not indifferent toward our condition? We pray that you would give your people everywhere today such a side of you that fuels obedience. We pray that the thought of the coming of Jesus of Nazareth would make us gladly keep our feet on a path of obedience and not drifting into the, to the mud and the muck of the old sins. We pray that since there is no God like you, that our lives would be unlike the lives of any people on this planet. It's not religion and Sunday mornings and Bible phrases. God, it's you that we need. We thank you for drawing near to us through your son. We thank you for drawing us to yourself. We thank you that that is just the beginning. So, God, until we see him face to face, will you take us by the hand? Will you teach us and transform us in this new and superior covenant? God, finish what you started. We ask it in your son's name amen. I want us to return again to the theme of following Jesus Christ, and that must include not just his teachings, but his example. And of course, we have in the New Testament Gospels such a perfectly suited um, fourfold portrait of Christ. And we have in the New Testament epistles an explanation of what we're looking at. So we don't just see Christ at work. We find that explained. But when we think of following the pattern of Jesus Christ, we have to also include uh, this, this perfect and wonderful harmony between his heart as a true human and the heart of God as Father. And so we have the moral law what does god because of the kind of being that he is what does god expect for righteousness with him what pleases the lord and what displeases the lord and we find that in the moral law now christ has satisfied the moral law with regard to righteousness paul says in other words nobody will keep the ten Commandments in order to climb up a little bit, even, to God. No one will keep the Ten Commandments in order to pay any debts, but because of what Christ has done, that can be placed on the account of the one that comes to Christ in faith. And having the righteousness of Christ placed on our account, or imputed to us, that wonderful bookkeeping term. So, it it, it is an action that God does, not us, And it's an action that God does outside of us. It's objective. It doesn't go up and down with our ups and downs. God constitutes or makes us right with Himself through the perfect obedience of His Son. Nothing less than that can satisfy. And then, from that great peace and that relationship we have with God flows a radically altered life. And that is a life desires to obey God. Well, we've been looking at uh, the first command in Exodus 20, and that is that we are to have no other gods before him. Not before him in the sense of priority, like, well, God has to be first, but then then you can have your other favorite things after that. A God, you know, an idol is just something that we wake up for, we live for, we think, this is something that will make me complete. This is something that I have to have. It's something I'm willing to disobey God to get. It's something I will throw an enormous fit and pity party if I don't get it. It's essential in our thoughts to happiness. And so an idol really is something that promises us the kind of completeness and happiness that only God can give and does promise So we are not to have anything in our heart that captures us like that. We can have many things we're grateful for, but nothing that we look to for our hope, nothing that we trust, nothing that we delight in, in that ultimate sense. When we look at that command, of course, you remember we talked about the nature of the uh, summary of the moral law in the 10 commandments. Each of these has a negative and a positive side. It's not enough just not to have idols before God or in God's presence. It's that we also want to have our hearts completely consecrated to Him. Wholly devoted to one person. Wholly dependent upon and trusting one person, God. We want to be like Asaph... In Psalm 73, who at the end of a very hard struggle with a divided heart and a bitter heart and a doubting heart, at the end of Psalm 73, he goes from envying the world to seeing again who his God is, and he says, whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth. Wonderful transition there. And I think any Christian who's been a Christian for some time feels I need that transition at times. Sometimes I look at the world and the life of the unbeliever may seem to be kind of smooth and easy and pleasant. And the life of the believer might seem to be very difficult at times. And if you aren't careful to remember who it is you belong to, then the Christian life might not seem worth it to you. But we turn and we see him like asaph did and seeing him that really answers the questions and stirs our heart it promotes in us again this flame of love for god alone it's a terrible thing when god has to say to his own people like he does in revelation 2 i have this against you that you have left your first love we want to be like John Calvin's personal motto. You probably have not read a lot about Calvin, though you probably have heard a lot about Calvin. But this is John Calvin's motto. If you want to see it, I believe AC in his office has a a plaque, a wooden plaque with the carving there of a hands holding a heart. And the motto is carved into the plaque. And it says this, it's a wonderful motto. It says, Calvin's motto is, I offer my heart to thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Or if you go back a little further, Augustine, early church leader, Augustine in the 5th century, so that's a long time ago, he says this, "Damihi te, Domine. Give me yourself, O Lord." We want that to be our constant statement to God. You know, when we wake up in the morning before our feet hit the floors, we're getting out of bed, we want our heart to say, give me yourself, O Lord. That's life. Or, like Calvin, I offer my heart to Thee, O Lord, promptly, sincerely. But sometimes, every Christian feels much more kinship... With the hymn that we sing, oh, where it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So let me ask you, before we go any further in the Ten Commandments, we have the first commandment, you're not to have any gods before his face, that you can't hide them anywhere in your heart, you can't have them in your family, you know, you can't have them in the way you think or in the way you act, because God sees all of that. It's all right in front of his face. So no other gods, and a heart wholly devoted to Him. Well, we know God deserves it, and the Christian wants to give that. But what do you do when you come to that kind of a command, and you see so many failures to love Him wholeheartedly? And we're not talking about sinless perfection, but we're talking about a sincerity, you know? Like Calvin said, promptly, sincerely, I don't want to delay You know, I I don't even want to... Sometimes you might be in the midst of a church service and you're singing a hymn or you're listening to a sermon or someone's praying and the heart is dealt with by God, you know, and there's that still small voice that whispers to you and you're stirred and you think, when I get home, I want to set aside some special time to meet with the Lord this week. Why wait? Why not turn your heart in the midst of the sermon and... Say to God quietly, uh, but sincerely, God, I give you my heart promptly. I don't want to delay a minute. Why live a few more minutes for me? Promptly and sincerely. Well, what do you do? What do you do when you come to a commandment like the first commandment, which is the foundation of all the other commandments and you realize that you have failed? And even when you wanted to do what it said, Oftentimes, you got busy and like the parable of the sower and the seeds, uh, uh, sorry, the sower and the soils, you're more like the soil that had the weeds and the word of God hit your heart and you thought, I am in complete agreement with that. I want to walk more carefully. I want to pick up my pace. I want to love him better. And then you get busy and you forget your good intentions. Now that can happen so frequently in a Christian life that the enemy can come alongside and say, what use is it even hoping that you will make any progress? What do you do when you come to God's commands and you see that you have failed them in the past? Well, there are a couple of options. I'm going to mention these and then I want to mention the cure. One is you can reduce what the command actually requires. Now, we don't say it that way, but we just use religious phrases to do that, that sound right. And because the religious phrase sounds right, then you think, well, so my argument must be right. So the religious phrase be something like this. In the new covenant, I'm saved by grace. You know, Christ has satisfied and kept the law for me. And those are true. But then you say, that means that God doesn't really expect when he says, no other gods in the heart, no other gods before me. God doesn't really expect there to be no other gods. And so the command, you know, in a sense, the bar is set here. And we say, but but because of grace, the bar is here. Or you say, well, I know that God knows that I'm totally depraved and I can't do anything on my own. That's any good. And oh, God, I, I can't do it. And so since God knows that the bar that looks like it's here now, actually, it's really right here. And so if I if I make a little effort or if I even forget to make an effort, my good intentions, that's as far as the bar requires. So you can do that. You can look at the commands. You can see that you have failed and you can say, well, let's let's explain that the bar's not that high another reason or another uh, response and it's a bad response as well is that you can reduce the seriousness of failure so you keep the bar high god deserves all my love my heart and soul and mind and strength and that doesn't change from old testament to new testament and it doesn't matter what we say that's the same because that's who he is okay So we fail, but you can reduce the severity of failure. In your mind, you say, well, I fail, but so does everybody else. It's like being in a class where everybody flunked the test. And what do you immediately think? Do you ever think, oh, it's worse. Not only did I fail, but everybody failed. Now it's, oh, it's just worse. No, you think everybody failed? That's great. Because now the teacher will know it's not our fault because we're failing. It's probably the teacher's fault. It's, you know, it's somebody's fault except for ours. I mean, what class all fails and and it's the student's fault. So because we all fail, you feel like, well, failure is not that big a deal. And even if your teacher doesn't grade on the curve and move you up to a passing grade, you at least go home and say to your parents, this thing that sounds so logical, well, we all failed. Even Susie failed, you know, the girl that never failed. So therefore, an F really isn't that bad of a thing, is it? When you look at humanity, when you look at Christians and say, well, they don't all obey. They don't obey perfectly. They fail. Well, then I think that a a failure is actually it's not as big as it used to be. Another thing we can do is we can despair. We can say, no, failure to love God is the great sin, and God will not adjust the bar because he deserves all my love and not a divided heart, and I agree with those things, but I have failed so often, I don't think it's worth hoping that, that I could, by his grace, love him in a way that he's pleased with, in a way that honors him, now, those are all three bad responses when you see the command and you look at yourself. But there is a good response, and that's what I want us to do this morning. And so we're going to focus on that so that as we look at the commands, we don't slip into one of those three wrong responses. And I would say this, is, this response is what I would call you've got to turn the Bible from a window. I mean, <laughs> I knew I'd do that. From a mirror into a window. All right, so let me say it again. You must turn your Bible from a mirror into a window. Now, the Bible is a mirror, isn't it? James says that we're not to be hearers only. We're not to be like people who, when the word of God is read or preached, studied or thought of in your own mind, that you're like a person that has a mirror in front of them and it shows you some things about yourself. And then you think, hmm, and you walk away and don't do anything differently. You don't make any changes. So James uses that simple picture. The word of God is like a mirror. It does show you you. But that is not the primary use of the word. It is a secondary use. The primary use is the word is a window. And the window enables you to look away from the mirror where you see the mess of your own life and you're ready to despair, but you look to your right or to your left and there's a window and you look out the window and there you see God. In the person of His son, doing everything required to fix what you just saw in the mirror. And doesn't mean that we're inactive. And we say, well, God will fix me one day. But it means that we don't have to stay that way. And there's no reason to despair if we will turn our Bibles from mirrors into windows. Both are appropriate. Both are, not, both are not equal. And both are not primary. The primary use of Scripture is to see someone other than me and to see them so clearly, who they are, what they're doing, what they've promised, that I can forget about myself and hope in them. And in doing so, amazingly, what's going on in here begins to be altered. So do you turn your Bible from a mirror to a window when you see these things about you that could break your heart? One of the most beneficial things that Martin Lloyd-Jones constantly reminds his hearers or readers of, if you've ever read one of the commentaries by Lloyd-Jones or one of his small books, one of the things he does that I think is probably the most helpful thing is that he constantly reminds us that we have to back up from ourselves, from the small focal point of what am I going to do about this word that God gives us? And he backs all the way up to the big picture. Well, what is God doing? And then he starts to narrow down to the specific picture. Okay. If that is what God's doing. Where is my life in that giant picture? You know. A, a picture of the size of this building. Like where's the little dot. The little pixel. That is John. Or is Chuck. Or is Barry. Or is you. I mean it's an important pixel. It's a part of the work of Christ. Where is it? And Lloyd-Jones says don't start there. Start with the big picture place yourself in the big picture, and then you'll be ready to narrow into, okay, so how does that change the way I think in the present moment? How does that change the way I talk when I go home and I'm interacting with family? Or how does that way change the way I desire when I'm up late at night or busy during the week? So we wanna do that. We wanna back up from the specific command, look at the big picture, and then come back to the specific command. In other words, I want us to see from the big picture down to the specific picture, all the reasons that Christians have for hope when they look at any of God's commands, at anything God requires of you. You want to love, uh, out of love, you want to obey the command, but how do you know that you will be able to? How do you know that you will? There are things that the Scripture teaches, and we hit on them, uh, you know, here and there, but I want to gather them all together this morning. There are things the Scripture shows us that make it impossible for any believer to reach the end of life and not have obeyed. Again, we're not talking about a perfection like Christ's, but a real and sincere obedience. No Christian will reach the end of this life and Christ present you to the Father. No Christian will reach that point without being able to look back and say, I see how God has saved me each step of the journey and the changes in my behavior are a result of that. There are good works. Now, you can confuse good works by putting them in the wrong place. You can't confuse them by making them too important. How do you avoid legalism? It's not by saying obedience and good works are not as important as the legalist says they are. It is by making sure they stay in the right category. The good works never, ever are mixed with the death and life of Jesus Christ to make you right with God. The good works flow out of that There have been men in recent years who are well-known and well-meaning religious leaders who have said, well, justification includes your good works. Well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean at the end of time, when you stand before the Lord, there will be good works in your life or obedience, there will be evidences of obedience that uh, demonstrate that your claim to love Jesus Christ was true? Your claim to have been saved by Jesus Christ was true? Well, yes, we we agree. But if you say, are you saying that at the end of time the judgment will be based on faith plus good works, and if I have enough good works, then I'm okay? With that, we would disagree. So how can we keep obedience, the significance of obedience, from getting all twisted up with self-righteousness How do we know that every believer will be able to, and more, will actually live obediently? Well, there are a number of things, and I want to kind of start with the big picture things, then we'll narrow narrow them down, but we will have to only mention them. I can give you the notes if you want them, because I have way too many pages of verses, so I'm going to just be selective, all right? So hang with me. Here we go. Number one. If we want to come to the Ten Commandments in the first command and it says no other gods in front of his face and you have felt. But I have failed there. And what hope is there that I would really be able to do what I do long to do? Well, don't start with willpower and getting a new Bible translation and, you know, buying a book on holiness back all the way up from you and think of the purposes of God. God. What are God's purposes? Now, if someone else has purposes for you, if your parents have purposes for you, if church leaders have purposes for you, well, that's nice, but they lack what God possesses naturally, so to speak. God essentially possesses the ability to to guarantee every single purpose of His is going to be accomplished. Not one will fail. So when God describes his purposes toward us and with us, purposes that existed even before we were born and will endure throughout all our lives and into eternity in the future, if God explains his purposes, it's quite significant because we know that all of God's purposes get accomplished. Not because God explained them to us and we got really busy doing them, though we will do them, But because the one that purposed is sovereign. He's God. So when he purposes something, it shows us where we're headed. And it lets us know why he commands these things and not just what he commands. Which I think for every Christian, it's a sweet thing. Remember what Job's book tells us? At the end of Job, God takes Job for a few chapters. He takes him for two walks. All right, Job, in a sense, take a walk with me and I've got some questions for you. Job has been asking a lot of questions about God and now God is going to ask Job some questions and we have a number of chapters. We have a couple of chapters, a question, then a break, and then a second episode where he asks Job another set of questions. And at the end of all of that, Job says this about God. I know that you, God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's the same thing later that Nebuchadnezzar says after God disciplines Nebuchadnezzar, you remember the seven years, and then when Nebuchadnezzar's wits are restored, when his right mind is restored, he talks about God. He is the Most High. Nebuchadnezzar says his dominion is everlasting. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among all the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So you see the picture there. God has purposes. Well, what kind of a God? A God that does everything he wants in heaven. And on earth, nobody can say to him, hey, what do you think you're doing here? And stop him. Well... What are his purposes? Ephesians 1. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Here's the purpose. That we would be holy and blameless in or before him. Romans 8. Same idea, different picture. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, Then he gives the reason for those whom he foreknew, he knew before they were born. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. We know that that doesn't mean we're going to physically look like Jesus, but we will morally look like Jesus. It is the eternal purpose of God. It is his unshiftable, immutable, unchanging determination that every believer would be worked in in such a way that at the end of the journey, Christ will be surrounded by a great company of brothers and sisters that morally look just like him. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. The love of Christ controls us, Paul says, having concluded this, That one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. What is the purpose of the cross? What is the purpose of a grave? What is the purpose of an empty grave? So that those who live in Christ, those who are spiritually alive, wouldn't waste any more time living for themselves, but would live for him. Titus chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, all types, not just Jews, instructing us to deny ungodliness. Have you thought of that? That the undeserved love of God is like a teacher. We know it by experience. The undeserved love of God instructs me to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. To obey. Looking... For the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us. That's the purpose. To rescue us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people of his own possession. Peter says the same thing. First Peter 2. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God has not called us for the purpose, he didn't call you to himself, for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives you his Holy Spirit 1 Thessalonians 5, the very next chapter. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and make your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. When we walk up to the first commandment, where do you start? I don't mean where, where should you start, but where do you tend to find yourself starting? I don't start here with the verses I just read. I start with, you know, um, kind of scolding myself, like, John, you forgot it again. John, you chose self over God again. John, do better. And that doesn't produce anything, but more disappointment. And then there's the other option. I could scoot back, you can scoot back all the way from ourselves and say, okay, what is God doing through the, throughout the years? He has purposed to rescue you so that you would be freed to obey him, to love him the way you want to. It is his purposes and every one of his purposes are going to be accomplished. So when we come to the first command and it says no gods in front of his face in your life, do not despair. He has purposed, he has guaranteed you will be able to and you will actually put away the idols and love him. Let me give you a second thing. It doesn't stop with God's sovereign purposes. God does a work for us and in us. And, you know, if we think of the triune persons, First Peter chapter one, Peter writes and says, to those of you who are chosen According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, there's the work of the Father, He chooses us for holiness, chooses us for Himself. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the Spirit is sent to bring you to God. So that choice is actually applied to the obedience. The goal is the obedience to obey, sorry, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. All three persons of the Godhead Accomplishing his purpose. Is there any reason that anyone who loves God should despair? That you will not be able to put your foot on the path of obedience today. Another reason. What God does purpose and what God accomplishes. When you think of the work of God. He is the one person who never leaves work half finished. Ever. In anything Not once has God started something and and then decided, I'm going to do something different. If you read the Old Testament and you think, well, that was the way God used to save people, but now that failed. I mean, the Jews failed so badly, so frequently. Now we have plan B in place, and that's grace. So not works, but grace. Then you completely understand, misunderstand the scriptures. God has, all through the Old Testament, been pointing us to what Christ would be and do, And the kind of relationship that a Christian would have with their Lord. So it's the unfolding of this great plan. And God has never left one aspect of that plan, thus far, half finished. And what he is yet to do, he will do. So if you belong to a God that finishes what he starts every single time, you have no reason to despair that when he commands you to love him and not idols, maybe you won't be able to. Think of Philippians 1. I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you, the changes here will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Surely you understand that that includes putting to death every idol that peaks itself up in our life. Second Timothy 2:19. The firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Both of those are linked with the sovereign, all-powerful work of God. God knows His children. And God knows His children are required to turn away from sin's lies, to walk with Him, and He will give them all that they need. So when we come to the first command, we don't begin with the command, we back way up. What are the purposes of God? What is the work of all three people in the triune God? These three persons, what are they doing? What is the Father? And what is the Son? And what is the Spirit doing that guarantees obedience? And will they leave it half finished? But there's more than that. Don't stop there. It's not just his purposes and his work and the fact that he doesn't leave it unfinished and that all three persons of the Trinity are the guarantee. There is also this issue of his gifts. When we give gifts to people, generally they are expressions of kindness. If they're gifts, generally they're things that a person could live without. But when God gives gifts to his people, according to his covenanted promises, they are not extra. They're life. God gives the new birth or the new creation. You know, God gives a new life to the Christian. The Old Testament spoke of it. We've read it many times in Jeremiah 31. God says, I will make a new covenant with you in that day, in the day when Christ comes. This covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. He says, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And if you say, well, but that's Israel, but that's not just Israel. Because in the New Testament, Hebrew says, this is talking about all true believers, all true children of Abraham. If you believe, then you are a fruit of this Old Testament prophecy that God would give new hearts. And on the new heart, he would write his law. Jeremiah 32 He carries it on and says more. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will not turn away from them. I will do them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. Why will the Christian not turn his feet off the path of obedience and go back to the old life? Because God has done something in your soul that makes that an impossibility. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. That's a pretty wonderful verse when we come to the first commandment. God, you say there's to be no other gods in my heart, no other gods in my life. You promised in the new covenant that you would cleanse us from all the filthiness of idols. You went on to say, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, in my commands, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The hope of these things is not that when you ask Jesus into your heart, you will have so much, so much willpower now that you'll guarantee it all, but the hope is that when you look at the word of God, You love the word of God. You want to do what pleases God. And while you are turning your face toward that and putting your feet on the path of specific obediences, he is at work putting his spirit within you and causing you to be careful with his commands, causing you to walk. God's purposes, God's work, all three persons Never stopping short, giving the gift of regeneration. And when God makes you new, it guarantees you cannot walk away. There are other gifts. In the gift of regeneration, God also doesn't gives other gifts. It's kind of like, okay, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it this way, but you'll understand what I'm saying. But this isn't something you know you'd want to write on the back of a book. People think you're a heretic. But... Um, It's like Christmas morning when there's a giant present that's wrapped, and you think, oh my goodness, when you're a kid, like, what's in that? And you open the big present, and there are all these individual gifts inside the big present. One year, Misty and I decided that since Sarah, daughter Sarah, not daughter-in-law Sarah, since Sarah liked Red Bull, and Red Bull quit selling a certain flavor, cranberry, all right? Dark moment in human history. They quit selling that. And so I went online and I located every can of that I could from every country in the world. It had, they had stopped producing it months before, so it was getting pretty hard to find. You couldn't find it in local stores. I think we got like 143 cans delivered. Now, we had a giant box that was used for a guitar, and we just crammed that box all the way full taped it shut and it was kind of hard to wrap because it's hard to pick up a box that's full of cans of of red bull and so you pick it up and we wrapped it and we put it under the tree in christ you open up what that means and everything you could possibly want for real happiness intimacy with god cheerful obedience it's all in him for you The gifts that God gives, not just new life, faith. And what does faith do? Faith believes. And when faith believes in the life of the believer, it guarantees that certain things will occur. Because you cannot believe what God says in this book. You cannot believe what God says about Christ. You cannot believe what God says about you. You cannot believe those things and not act on them. When God has made you alive. So that's why James can say, what use is it if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Okay? Because that can't exist. Can that faith save him? Oh, we say, I'm a believer. You can show someone you're a believer. They can't look inside your soul or mind, but they can see the life and things that you are believing are leading to different choices. If a brother or sister, James says, is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And James goes on to say, you can show me your faith, well, I'll show you my works, and by my works, you'll realize that within my soul, there is faith. Something about the nature of faith guarantees that you will grasp what God supplies. You will believe what God says, and the Christian will not be able to remain inactive. It's so sure that James can say, I will show you my good works, the changes in my life, my obedience, and you will know clearly, I have faith. God has also given repentance. The Bible describes it as giving repentance unto life. Repentance is a gift. It's not, a, it's not penance. It's not something you're doing to ask God, would he give you a second chance? So I'll, I'll clean myself up. Repentance is turning to Christ. And in turning to Christ, it's dumping the stuff that you once hoped in or hoped in again. And it's, it's a gospel word or a gift word because apart from the work of Christ. Repentance is not an option. You make your choices. You live live for yourself. You notice that you're heading toward a cliff if you keep making these selfish choices and you think, you know what? I think I better clean things up before I take another step or two. I probably better back up a little from this edge. You know, I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my freedom. I don't want to lose this or this. I want to live for myself, but I don't want to self-destruct. And the law... And your willpower, they give you nothing. But Christ opens a door and commands you to come to him. And you don't have to take the next step off the cliff. Repentance unto life. And Paul describes the work of repentance in us. And he says this, Behold what earnestness. This very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. And we don't have time to look at that passage. But Isaac, uh, sorry, uh, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, wrote a little book called Repentance on that passage, Second Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul lists and says, I know you've repented. Do you remember Chuck preaching through this? How do you know we repented, Paul? Because all the outward changes. Christ gives repentance. Christ gives faith. The Spirit brings them and stamps them in the soul. And faith works. And repentance changes us. So there is no reason when we come to the commands of God to say, I don't know, I don't think I would ever be able to do that, even though that is what I long to do, because God has given you gifts. Life, faith, repentance. Now, that is why when John in his first epistle makes statements about how we know that we really know God or how we know that we've been born again, that is why it's not legalism. It's just stating the nature of things. If you take the purposes of God and the labor of God and the gifts of God and how they act when you have them within you, how they cause you to act You bring all that together and you get 1 John. Statements like this. Chapter 2. The one that says, I've come to know God. I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Or later in chapter 3, the combination of the purposes of God, the work of God and the nature of those gifts, the new birth. Faith and repentance. So 1 John 3 says, everyone who practices habitual lifestyle, sin, practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. Again, that habitual self-centeredness. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. The son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. That's the heart of it. What God has purposed, what God is doing, and what God is giving in the new birth and in faith and repentance, the only possible conclusion is this there is no way that a Christian would not be able or actually do the things that God commands. Give you another one. All those wonderful things, and then there's a new family. We mentioned this yesterday in the wedding. A new family. Now you have a new father you've been adopted into the family of God and like adopted children you don't look like your adoptive parents and you may not have their accent you may not you may not act like them but the longer you live with them you start to resemble them in the way that you act it's the same thing spiritually think of the character of the father who has adopted you and you will live the rest of of time and eternity in that family, think of how that changes, how that guarantees that obedience is not just possible, but we will. I can remove the idols of my heart day by day, little by little. I can put those to death. I know there's no reason to despair because I'm adopted into the family and the father of that family, whose character will be molding my character, that has guaranteed obedience. 1 Peter chapter 1 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Will it really work? Yes. Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And he's talking about holy changes, holy lifestyle But right before he says that, he explains, you're in a family, and in this family, there is a father who is perfectly holy and perfectly wise and perfectly capable, and he will lovingly train you and discipline you for the purpose of holiness. It is impossible to be in that family and to come to the first commandment and to say, honestly, I don't think that will ever be me. I can't do it. Think of the brothers and sisters in the family. They're very imperfect. They're not like the father. But because they belong to the father, Ephesians says that the Christians around you, and you can even think of Christians down through the ages that we read their books. God uses them as a channel of life. So Ephesians 4 says... From whom Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, that's the individual Christians, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So there's this maturing happening in believers as they walk with God, connected with the Savior and connected to each other. And what follows that passage? I know we know that passage. What follows that passage in Ephesians 4 is a series of statements about how the Christian is not to go back to the old lifestyle, but by what God is supplying, and that includes your brothers and sisters around you, you will be enabled to live in this dark world as a light, and you will make an impact on this world, and you'll be part of the unfolding of the kingdom, and, and other Christians will be a part of supplying what you need for that. How do we know that we can come to the first commandment and we want to give him wholehearted love today? Well, one of the reasons we know it is possible and we'll be able to do it is that we belong to a totally new family. Another metaphor, a new garden. God takes you out of the garden of self-centeredness, the wild tree of the Old Testament, the Gentiles, the pagans. He cuts you off that and he grafts you into the true vine, Christ. And this living connection that John 15 talks about. Abide in me, Christ says, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you take a branch and you graft it into a new vine, you make the little cut, you graft it in and you bind it together, well, you can... You could super glue the branch in. You you could tie it to the vine. But unless there is a living connection where the life of the vine flows into the life of the branch, that branch would never produce fruit. But with a living connection, it will produce fruit. All the branch has to do is to stay inside the vine. And the vine does the fruit producing. Now, with that in mind, we know that... If a branch isn't connected, it can't bear fruit. The negative is true. But what about the positive? Listen to the very next verse in John 15, 5. I am the vine. He repeats it. You are the branches. He who abides in me, who clings to me, who stays close to me, he bears much fruit. That's why in verse 8 of the same chapter, Christ can say that... If you are my disciples, you will bear much fruit. That brings honor to God. It's really a very pictorial way, a very symbolic way of saying what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When he says, but by his, God's doing, the Father. But by the Father's doing, you are in Christ. That living connection. Who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. It's all in the vine. And the Father made you a living part of the vine, and in Christ you have all. Being connected to this perfect vine with all this life is not all you have. You have the perfect gardener. Jesus says it in John 15, I am the vine, my Father is the vine dresser. There is a perfect gardener who knows how to prune when your life is getting too cluttered, who knows how to heal if there's problems, to remove the diseases that so easily get on the vine, to supply everything the vine needs to be healthy. Everything that we could hope for from the gardener, he is. There is no way that you will not produce the fruit of obedience. A new kingdom, we talk about this a lot, so I'll just mention it, Romans 6. In... Christ, the old you died and that old you belonged to the old master in the old kingdom and a new you is raised with a new identity. And in the new kingdom, every single person is guaranteed that by virtue of being ruled by this king in this kind of kingdom, everything you need for obedience is provided and sin will never again be allowed or able to master you. So what reason would we have to despair when we look at the first commandment and it says, don't let any idols be in your life. And the flip side, be wholehearted in your love for God. And I remember I'm in a new kingdom and everybody in that kingdom is being enabled to do just that. That means everybody in that kingdom, you know, it's like you have this dual description. You once were, but now you are. 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You were, but now you are. In the kingdom that's everybody everyone in this family everyone in this kingdom everyone that's connected to this vine you once were but now you are and since none of the once were descriptions end up with Christ eternally in the new creation that means not one believer can remain that way because every believer is going to make it the biblical logic is clear Everyone that comes to Christ, believing, turning to Him in repentance, clinging to Him, everyone that comes to Christ, He saves them. And He says in John chapter 6, that everyone, well, let me read it. This is the will of my Father. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Everyone without exception. Everyone that comes to Christ in faith Having been saved by Christ, he will continue to save you. Having been justified, he'll sanctify you and everyone will be completed and raised up on that last day. Now, if the Bible says these are descriptions of people who are in the kingdom and these are descriptions of people, this lifestyle of people that are not in the kingdom, if that's true and everyone who believes is ultimately finished, safe with Christ, then that means those old descriptions aren't going to be the descriptions of your life anymore and the new descriptions are. Which is why the Bible can give the judgment scenes and say things like in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. If Christ says you have to do the will of the Father, to enter the kingdom of heaven, or that will mark out my disciples. That will be the evidence that they believe. And then he says, everyone who believes makes it. Then you understand that that means every Christian has reason to hope. I will not only be able, but I will, by the grace of God, remove idols from my heart. And it is impossible to imagine that I would remain under their lies. Well, there are so many other things. The work of the Spirit within us to desire and to do His will. will, The superiority of the new covenant. The old covenant, you look at the face of Moses and it's terrifying because it glows with the glory of God and you keep disobeying that God. But in the new covenant, you look at the face of Christ and you see in Christ all that holiness, but united to such a infinite fullness of undeserved love and constant mercy. And so as you look at Christ in the Scriptures, the Spirit is transforming you. All your needs are being met, Peter says. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life. You could think about the argument of the good shepherd. How do I know I will be able to obey the first commandment? Because you belong to a shepherd who is perfect who knows his sheep, who seeks his sheep. And when they wander off the path and they fear that they'll never make it back and maybe they feel like I don't even know the way back and they cry out to God like the psalmist, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant for I do not forget your commands. I know that there's a path. I want to be on the path. And Christ finds the wandering sheep and brings them back. Christian, the command comes. No idols, no division of your heart. Love him. Trust him only. Okay, then we back up. I see the purposes of a God, not a man. I see the gifts of a God, not a man. I see the adoption into a God's family I'm planted in a God's garden. I'm brought into a God's kingdom. I'm worked in by the spirit of a God and the superior contract of love that the God designed is what I'm living in. I am being daily supplied by a God. And the God of the Bible is my shepherd. How could I doubt that I would not have everything I need to guarantee that I will remove those idols? and I will progressively love him more. Great news, unless you don't want to love him, and you don't want the commands, and walking a path of obedience is about the last thing in the world that you're interested in. So you're in the building, but the heart's not there. But why not go to this king and say, if these things are true of sinners who have come to you, If you're that good to your enemies, what must it be like to live with you? God, save me from me. Save me from the emptiness of sin's lie. God, save me from my good works and religion that I'm hoping in. I'm coming to meet you at the cross. And if you come, you will not be turned away. And he will work. And you can look back at the end of a life and say, everything we just said, you'll be able to say, it is all true. He is all that he says he is, and he does what he promises. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for a faithfulness that far outstrips even our best description. So God, help us to believe, to give you ourselves for the first time or the thousandth, to trust What you say? To be conquered? God, don't let us waste another day living for the emptiness of a pretend monarch ourselves. For love of your Son, help us. For love of our souls, pity us. But don't leave us the way you find us. Work, God, in a way that can never be reversed. We're asking. As we turn our faces to you. In Christ's name. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself. Sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul. And body. Be preserved complete. Without blame. At the. At the pardon. Without blame. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. And he will also bring it to pass.